0: I can't remember what it was I was trying to fix when I was growing up. I was a kid. Uh, But my dad saw me struggling with it. And he said to me, son, do you know what the first law of engineering is? I said, no, no, dad, I don't know what the first law of engineering is. He said, well, if it doesn't fit, force it. (laughs) Well, more recently, I was installing a new door with my father-in-law in in my home. And let's just say we needed the studs to move over a bit. And I remember my father-in-law looking over at me saying... We're gonna need a bigger hammer. Uh, Go get the sledgehammer. Uh, And so I did, and uh, we needed things to square up, and uh, we got to square by submission, but we certainly forced it. Uh, To be clear, the the first law of engineering and the first law of construction is not, if it doesn't fit, force it. But that's often the way we approach life, isn't it? I mean, if it doesn't fit, sometimes we try to force it. Uh, Maybe you've tried that before with a relationship or with a housemate. Maybe you've tried that before with a job, a career, or a work schedule. Maybe you've tried it with handling your finances. Maybe you're trying it with something right now. Deep down, we know that as the cool kids say these days, this is not the way. But we want it so badly to work that we will try to force it. If we apply just a little more force or found a bigger hammer, metaphorically speaking, Right? It, it, would, it would work if we put in just a little more effort and all would be well and we would be fulfilled and live happily ever after, wouldn't we? Well, the truth is it rarely if ever works out, doesn't it? Our use of force usually fails and often brings more burdens than blessings. That's actually what we see in God's word today in Genesis 16. In this chapter, we see Abram and Sarai force it, so to speak. Uh, They tried to fulfill God's promises of having a son by human force. And we certainly learned that this is not the way. Uh, More than that, we learned that the fulfillment of God's promises comes by God's power. God's son will come by God's strength. And that means that Abram and Sarai and the people of Israel and we often have to wait patiently upon the Lord. Rather than forcing our own agenda, forcing our own timing, forcing our own plan. Rather than using force, we need to exercise faith. And I pray that God would use His Word this morning to teach us to trust Him when we grow impatient in seeing His promises and purposes fulfilled in our lives. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe that you can find the passage beginning on page 11. While you're turning there, allow me just to bring you up to speed on the context of our passage. Remembering the context of a passage is always important to rightly understanding the passage. So in the opening chapters of the Bible, we're in the book of Genesis after all, in the opening chapters of the Bible, God created the world, He created everything and everyone. He particularly made one man and one woman and placed them in a beautiful garden. Gave them life and labor and love there in that garden. And it was there in that glorious garden that they rebelled against God's command. They decided to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had commanded them not to eat of. And so in the face of that rebellion, they, they threw off God's, God's good rule. But in the face of that rebellion, God was gracious. He promised redemption in a son. In Genesis 3.15, he promised that he would send a son who would one day overcome sin and death. And that's what we've been waiting for to take place in the book of Genesis. That hope of that promise of seeing a son, a promised son who would come, has been narrowed to Abram and his family line. We've met Abram and Sarai. In chapter 12, we saw God especially give Abram a promise that he would send a son. So through Abram's sons would come this promised son who would be a savior of the world. Well, God, Abram trusted God, uh, and he trusted him. He showed his loyalty to the Lord, his trust in the Lord in chapters 13 and 14. And then last week, as we saw in Genesis chapter 15, Abram started to get just a little bit impatient. He started to ask the Lord, why and when? Why do I remain childless? When are you going to fulfill this promise? And so the Lord reveals to Abram that he really could be trusted. He showed him in the stars. Abram, you can trust me. I'm going to, the creator, and I'm going to give you sons as many as the stars as you can count them. Abram, you can trust me. I'm going to form this covenant. I'm going to commit myself under pain of death to fulfilling these promises to you. And after that, We get chapter 16. After God so clearly, plainly showing Abram that he could be trusted, we get this astounding chapter. This revelation of a lack of trust in Abram and Sarai. They go outside of God's purposes and plans in an attempt to fulfill God's promises. They try to force fulfillment. They scheme and sin against the Lord and sin against one another and sin against a maidservant named Hagar. They try to force fulfillment and they not only fail... But they also find themselves frustrated, still waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And through it all, we learn that God's promises will not be fulfilled by human strength. Salvation does not come by human strength. Instead, we should patiently persevere in trusting the Lord's providence and power. So if I had to boil the thrust of this text and the sermon down into a single sentence, this would be it. We patiently wait upon God to fulfill His promises by His power. Let me say that again because it's something that we need to uh, set our hearts upon day by day. We patiently wait upon God to fulfill His promises by His power. Or, if you want it in the form of a hashtag, hashtag don't force it. Well, we're going to unpack Genesis 16 in two sections under two headings. First, God's promises come by God's power. We're going to see that in the first six verses, verses 1 to 6. And second... God's promises call for patient faith. You can find that outline, I think, just a little bit more there on an insert provided in your bulletin. Let's begin with our first point. We learn that God's promises come by God's power. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 6. Genesis 16, verses 1 to 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, the Egyptian, her servant, And gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she, Hagar, fled from her. Well, beloved, in these verses, we see that God's promises come by God's power in light of Abram and Sarai's great failure of faith. They develop a sinful scheme there in verses 1 and 2. They pursue the promised child in the wrong way there in verses 3 and 4. And as a result, their family is fractured in verses 5 and 6. Moses, you see there, he gives us the background for the emergence of this sinful scheme there in verse 1. Here we learn of Sarai's painful history of barrenness. We read those words that she had borne him no children. Now by the time we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to learn that Abram is eighty-six. That means at this point in time, Sarai is about 77 years old. Uh, When the promises first came to Abram back in chapter 12, he was 75. That means roughly 10-11 years have passed before a son finally arrives in Abram's household. The patriarch and his princess are growing old. The promises of God are growing dim. We had a sense of that, remember in the last chapter, when Abram reminded the Lord that he remained childless, Impatience is growing you can understand what's going on for abram and sarah right i mean have you ever been impatient with the lord to do something in your life wondering how long you must wait how long oh lord do i have to wait for you to answer this particular prayer request this particular desire of my heart how long oh lord do i have to wait and know the reason for my suffering how long lord jesus will you will it take for you to return And end this depravity, this disease, this decay, this death in our world. Waiting is hard. Faith-filled work. Waiting requires trusting God's promises and relying on God's power. Moses he ushers in a foreboding word when he tells us that Sarah had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Twice, once in verse two, and once again in verse three, Moses tells us that Hagar was an Egyptian. He doesn't want us to miss this detail. And do you remember what happened the last time there was barrenness in Abram's life? Back in Genesis chapter 12. Remember what happened when the land was barren? Where did Abram go? He went down to Egypt for help. He went looking to Egypt for relief. Abram endangered the promises of God by throwing his wife into harm's way. And he's kind of about to discard her yet again. He's about to go down to Egypt for help again. And those who were first listening to this book there Mount Sinai that the people of Israel just been freed from Egypt rescued from Egypt they personally knew the temptation of what it was to go back to Egypt for help at one point on their journey out of uh, Egypt and across the wilderness to Mount Sinai at one point in Exodus chapter 17 verse 3 they asked Moses why did you bring us up out of Egypt they were those who were confronted again and again by the Lord and reminded that Egypt is not where you go when you're in trouble you go to the Lord the first audience hearing this would have been thinking, oh no, he's going to go and seek Egypt for help again, isn't he? They're going to go down to Egypt. Well, this time, instead of it being Abram's idea, it's Sarah's idea. And verse 2 is a total train wreck. And when we move from barren Sarai to burdened Sarai, can you hear it in her words? The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She's saying, God has closed up my womb. This is not fair. Faithful women of Bible... Never intentionally choose barrenness. No, barrenness is a burden to them. And Sarai is clearly overcome with grief. And her discernment is cloudy at best. She makes an awful offer to Abram. She views her maidservant, Hagar, as an impersonal instrument for securing her own happiness and her own offspring. Look at her words there in the middle of verse 2. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Sarai is forgetting that God personally rescued her from Egypt in Genesis chapter 12 because he wanted to fulfill his promises through Abram and her, not through Abram and another woman. It's interesting, Sarai never actually mentions Hagar by name in this chapter. She just calls her my servant. And to some degree, Sarai is making this about herself, isn't she? Rather than God and the fulfillment of his promises. And we know that this is an... A human attempt to force the fulfillment of God's promises. Not only by the context and the words that we're reading here, but also by a later biblical text. Right? We read Galatians chapter 4 earlier in the service. And there Paul uses Hagar as an example of what it looks like to attain or attempt to attain salvation by human effort. By human works. It's a vain attempt, God's word teaches us. And in this vain attempt, Sarai distorts God's design for marriage to be a single exclusive and covenant union entered into by one man and one woman. Now, just as an aside, an important aside, I think, God's word in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, says that marriage should be held in honor among all. Now, these past few weeks, let us be honest, marriage has not been held in honor among all, certainly not across the river in Washington, D.C., whether that be through Senate votes or House votes Or Supreme Court arguments. Marriage has not been held in honor. Among all. And because God designed marriage. He gets to define. Marriage. What marriage is. And all who wish to meddle with what the creator has made. Will one day meet him. And give an account. Be sure. That you should hold marriage in honor. Be sure. That you do not go down the road that Sarai does. Back to our regularly scheduled programming, Sarai. She not only distorts God's design for marriage as, the, as just between one man and one woman, but she also distorts God's design for marriage as the sole context for sexual intimacy and procreation. She is attempting surrogacy by another woman. Sarai's words are contrary to those of Eve. So when Eve had her first son, in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, she said that she had gotten a son with the help of the Lord, but Hagar... Sarah does not want a son through God's help. She wants it through Hagar's help. Sarah has given up on God's help, but she's going to try and force fulfillment through Hagar's help. And she desires to make Abram a polygamist in order to do it. And as we learned in Genesis 2, when God brings one, one man and one woman together in marriage, he intends for them to be in only one marriage. God did not give Adam multiple wives. That's not God's design. The Bible never smiles on, condones or promotes polygamy, it always shows us that polygamy is an unmitigated disaster. Whether that be in the lives of the patriarchs, which we're about to see, and going to see over and over again in the book of Genesis, or in the lives of kings like Solomon, polygamy is sin and always wrong. Now, many scholars will point out that it was common custom in the ancient Near Eastern world to use a servant as a surrogate if the mistress was barren. But beloved, worldly custom cannot be consecrated. Sin cannot be sanctified. And the current trend of surrogacy adopted by our popular culture falls into this same category. The world's ways are never God's ways. It doesn't matter if sinful practices are common in our day. It doesn't matter if everybody is doing it. The Lord says, no, this is not the way. Trust me. Trust my design. Trust my pattern. Trust my promises. Trust my power. Now, did you catch how verse 2 concluded? It concluded like this. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. It was the Lord's indictment of Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. When he listened to the voice of Eve, took of the fruit and ate. This is Moses, the author of Genesis. This is Moses' not-so-subtle way of saying, This is a sinful scheme, and the fruit that you are about to eat is going to be bitter. Now, beloved, let's be clear. This is not a Bible verse which tells us that husbands should not listen to the voice of their wives. That is utter folly, and a man is a fool who will not listen to the wisdom of his godly wife. What this Bible verse teaches us is certainly that husbands should not listen to and go along with sinful schemes from their wives. And you should not be shocked by the idea that both men and women are capable of plotting sinful schemes. I know that there is a diatribe on toxic masculinity in our day. But beloved, both sexes are filled with sin and equally capable of going the wrong way. Positively, husbands are the heads of their wives. They are to take the lead in the relationship. That is God's design. But clearly, Abram is not leading. He's being led. He is capitulating to everything Sarai wants and says. What we should be seeing from Abram is a gentle correction of his dear bride. He should be comforting her, saying, honey, I know that you want a baby. I want a baby too. And I am grieved that we, that we are bearing. I'm sorry, honey. We have to trust the Lord. We can't take matters into our own hands and sin a Uh, in sin like this. We have to wait upon the Lord. He has promised us a child and we will trust Him for His grace. We have to trust that behind this frowning providence right now, this barrenness for us, that He hides a smiling face. We have to trust that His purposes will ripen fast, that they're unfolding every hour. We have to trust that though this bud may be bitter, that one day when it blooms, sweet will be the flower. Sisters, consider that sometimes you're going to have to trust that God is working through your husband, even when he says no. And even when your plans aren't sinful, sometimes we come to decisions that aren't right and wrong decisions. They're kind of left-right decisions. And sometimes your husband is going to choose to go right when you think that you ought to go left, and you have really good reasons for them. And those are hard times of disagreement. But trust that God is at work in and through your husband. The case that's before us is not a left-right decision, but a right-wrong decision. In verses 3 and 4, we see Abram and Sarai put this sinful scheme into action. And these verses are filled with allusions to the fall in Genesis 3. Like Adam and Eve before them, they go the wrong way. They waited long enough. They've lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, and Sarai can't wait any longer. She has a plan that looks good to her eyes. It is attractive enough, and apparently Hagar is attractive enough for Abram, And just like Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, that's the language of the fall in Genesis 3, do you see what Sarai did? Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So contrary to God's design, Abram takes a second wife in Hagar and he consummates the marriage. He goes into Hagar. He sins and falls just like Adam and Eve did before him. And do you remember what happened in the fall in the garden? What happened after the fall? Eyes were opened. What happens when Hagar conceives? Well, really, everyone's eyes are open, aren't they? Hagar sees her mistress in a new light, that she's lower than her, really. Sarai saw Hagar's contempt, and Abram should have seen that he shared the blame. What is left after going the wrong way through this sinful scheme? Well, nothing but a fractured family. Verses 5 and 6 are filled with regret, refusal of responsibility, and revenge. Look at how Sarai lashes out at Abram in verse 5. You remember after the fall in Genesis 3, the Lord told Adam and Eve that there would be conflict in marriage. What do we see here? Finger pointing at its finest. Everyone in this narrative is guilty of sin, but Sarai lays the blame at Abram's feet. May the wrong be done to me be on you. She even feels so right and righteous that she appeals to the heavenly court. May the Lord judge between you and me, she says. She forgets that when the Lord came to judge between Adam and Eve after the fall, He judged everyone. He judged everyone. And in verse 6, Abram abdicates again. And he even gives permission for Sarai to mistreat Hagar. He is attempting to wash his hands of the situation of his sin. This is not manly. This is cowardly. Real men take responsibility for their sin. And Abram has real sin here. Real men take the responsibility for their sin. They confess their wrong. They seek forgiveness from the Lord and from those they've sinned against. Real men take up the temporal consequences of their sin. And labor under them for the glory of God. Rather than allow those consequences to fall on others. Abram should have shielded Hagar from Sarai's revenge. But he hands her over for harsh and heavy treatment, mistreatment. Notice how this stretch of verses concludes. Hagar takes off. Consider what this means. Abram and Sarai's attempt to fulfill God's promises in their power totally failed. Even if God was going to make the child in Hagar's womb the child of promise... That child is no longer in the household. Hagar's left. So in the end, Sarai doesn't get the child she wanted. Abram doesn't get the happy wife that he wanted. Hagar doesn't get the home and husband she wanted. Sin doesn't give anybody any of what they wanted. Friends, brothers and sisters, let's just pause here and reflect on the fact that sin did not bring satisfaction. Sarai is not any happier than when this chapter began. Abram is not any happier And before, he went along with this sinful scheme and went the wrong way. Sin did not solve the problem. Sin did not bring satisfaction. Sin did not fulfill the promises. But here's the thing. In moments of temptation, sin always presents itself as the way to fulfillment. You need to understand this about sin. In moments of temptation, sin always presents itself as the way to fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness. Sin always appears beautiful. But in the end it's bitter. You need to remember this about sin when you're tempted. Remember that the end of sin is only brokenness and bitterness. When you are tempted to send that zinger right back across the room, remember that the end of sin is only brokenness and bitterness when you're tempted to revile in return. Or to punish someone with silence. Remember, the end of sin is only brokenness and bitterness. When you are tempted to take one more look, one more drink, one more bet, One more compromise. The Lord has set these truths before us plainly in his word. And our life experience testifies to it. We know these things are true. We need to remember the end of sin before we begin. Before we begin to try to force fulfillment in our lives. And find fulfillment in sin. It won't happen. The truth is our hearts and souls will not be fully satisfied in anything or anyone other than the Lord We certainly learned from Abram and Sarai and Hagar that God's promises will not be fulfilled by human power. No, God's promises come by God's power. But Genesis 16 teaches us another lesson too. A corollary lesson. God's promises call for patient faith. This is our second point. God's promises call for patient faith. Follow along now as I read Genesis 16 verses 7 to the end of the chapter. The angel of the Lord found her, he's finding Hagar, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beherlehai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Beret. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Well, in these verses, we see that God's promises call for patient faith. Now, I admit that's not readily obvious on the surface of the text. But I think the text bears it out. So bear with me as I try to show this to you. In these verses, we see the Lord seek out Hagar, verses 7 and 8. We see the Lord send Hagar back to Sarai with a promise, verses 9 to 12. We learn that the Lord sees those in the midst of their suffering and sin, verses 13 to 15. And we learn that the Lord sustains His promises there in verse 16. One of the things that I think should warm our hearts about this text is the Lord seeking out Hagar. What what do you see there in verse 7? But that the angel of the Lord found her. Which means that he was seeking her. Now, by the time we get to verse 13, it's clear that this angel of the Lord is none other than the Lord who spoke to her. So this is what theologians call a theophany. That's a physical, visible manifestation of God in the Old Testament. How kind of the Lord to personally pursue Hagar. Consider her situation. She is on her way back to Egypt. That's the direction in which she's headed. She's actually kind of made it to the borders of Egypt. She's on her way back home to Egypt, pregnant, with no husband, and in the wilderness. Think of all of the difficulties she was facing in that circumstance. What worry would have welled up within her as she thought about finding shelter and sustenance for herself and for her baby? She is no doubt tired. Pregnancy is hard enough on a woman's body. And here she's traveling to boot. She is no doubt emotionally worn down. You know the old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That isn't true. I mean, Sarai's harsh words almost certainly hurt her. Abram's abandonment and removal of her protection no doubt hurt her. And in his kindness and compassion, the Lord is seeking her out. Not only is the Lord seeking out the one who suffered, but remember, he's also seeking out one who has sinned greatly. She is a sinner and in need of his grace. She was trying to force her own fulfillment and level up in marrying Abram and in treating her mistress with contempt. It's never right to treat another person made in God's image with disdain. And it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that Hagar was trying to usurp the place of her mistress in the heart of Abram. See, I can have a baby, but she can't. Abram, you should love me more. She can give him children. Sarai, for now, cannot. Hagar is not an innocent bystander in this passage. She has her own sin in the course of events here. And the Lord doesn't leave her to her worries or to her weakness or wickedness. He seeks her and he finds her. He finds her by a spring, which we learn later is given the name of a well. Well, This is an Old Testament woman at the well story. And we're actually going to get a number of those in the book of Genesis. But for now we see and we should be encouraged by the compassion that God displays toward Hagar. He seeks sufferers and sinners. Friend, I wonder if he's seeking you. I wonder, are you running from something or someone or some situation? Are you running even from the Lord? Consider the Lord's compassion toward Hagar. Consider that his pursuit of you might actually be part of his plan in bringing you more good and grace than you've dared to imagine. One of the things that is interesting about verses 7 and 8 is that they are reminiscent of the Lord when he saw Adam and Eve after their sin in the Garden of Eden. The Lord's question, where have you come from and where are you going? In verse 8, sounds a lot like his question to the first couple who was fleeing God's presence in Genesis 3. And what, what a kind of word did the Lord speak to Adam and Eve when he found them? He spoke a word of correction. And consolation, and that's how he speaks to Hagar in verses 9 to 12. The Lord's word of correction comes out there in verse 9. When he tells Hagar to return to her mistress, Sarah. And to submit to her. Not only should she return to her husband. But the Lord intended for Hagar to learn humility in submitting to and serving Sarah. It's possible that her pregnancy made her proud. And instead of despising the authority that the Lord had actually set over her. Hagar needed to honor, to respect, and to submit to Sarai. But why would anyone willingly choose to endure suffering? Why would Hagar knowingly go back to that hostile environment? Because the Lord commanded her to. And that is reason enough. But she should also return. Because blessing is bound up with Abram and his household. Abram is the one that the Lord has promised to bring blessing through. You know, one of the default assumptions of our age is that we should never be disagreed with or endure difficulty or discomfort. That's why I think the spirit of this age is that the self is sovereign. And because the self is sovereign, it deserves a smooth, trouble-free life where we're always satisfied. And in fact, another default assumption in our age is that everything and everyone has to be equal. There are no superiors or inferiors. And it is, of course, in that kind of environment where God's authority can be easily dismissed. And in fact, it's in that kind of environment where God himself is easily dismissed. But beloved, could it be that God intends for us to learn something about the way of Jesus through being disagreed with, through enduring difficulty or discomfort, Could it be that God intends for us to learn something about the way of Jesus through humble submission to proper and authorized authority? Children, let me say to you that God certainly intends for you to learn something about the way of Jesus through humbly submitting to and honoring your father and mother, even though they are imperfect. It strikes me that Hagar is willing to obey this command to return to Sarai precisely because she has met the compassionate God and he has consoled her. This command does not come from a God God who is capricious or uncaring. No, this command comes from a God who is compassionate and generous. Just look at what he promises Hagar in verses 10 and 12. In verse 10, we hear an echo of the Abrahamic promise that Hagar's descendants will be a great multitude. This son will be part of God's means to secure Hagar's future and her flourishing. Perhaps Hagar can patiently endure the future in faith, under Sarai's authority, because of this promise from God. Promises from the faithful God help us to keep holding on and plodding along, patiently trusting Him along the way. And the Lord, as He so often does, He tells Hagar what she shall name her son. She is to name him Ishmael, which means the Lord hears. This would have been very interesting to the original audience for Moses, because that's how their rescue from Egypt all got started. Like the Lord heard the cries of the Egyptian Hagar in Exodus, uh, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, we learn that God heard the cries of his people in Egypt and set in motion his plan to deliver them. The God who seeks and sends Hagar is the same God of Israel. Now, I don't know if this is if, if it's how it's set in your Bibles, but I wonder if verse uh, 11 and 12 in my Bible are set in something kind of a poetic form. One of my Old Testament professors. Used to say that in the course of narrative, when you want to say something really important, you say it in poetry. Now, I'm not sure that's always true. It often is. And it might be true here. I wonder, have you puzzled over why we have this prophecy concerning Ishmael? Why are we told that he shall be a wild donkey of a man? His hand against everyone. Everyone's hand against him. And that he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Okay, so he's going to be wild. He's kind of going to be an outsider, not really living in and amongst people. A wanderer, so to speak. He'll fight everyone, and everyone will fight with him. This doesn't sound like the son of blessing promise, does it? No. It's not supposed to. We're told this so that it's clear that Ishmael is not the son of promise. Which means that we still have to wait patiently for that son to come. For God to send him. Remember, all of this is occurring after Abram and Sarai's sin. With all of those allusions to the fall in Genesis 3, the seeing taking, the giving. And what happened after Adam and Eve sinned? God promised that he would put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So running throughout humanity would be two groups of people. The seed of the serpent, those who are not God's people, and the seed of the woman, those who are, would be God's people. Now put on your thinking caps for a minute. Who was the first son to come to Adam and Eve? Was it the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent? Was it the godly Abel? No. It was the wicked Cain. He was the first son who did what? He raised his hand against his brother. And because of his sin of raising his hand against his kinsmen, Cain was going to be a wild wanderer on the earth. And one of Cain's descendants, one of the sons that followed after him, multiplied Cain's violence and vengeance. Remember Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 in poetic form. One of Cain's sons, Lamech, a descendant of Cain, proudly declared, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So while Hagar would have rejoiced that she would have a multitude of sons, what is clear is that those sons would bring a multitude of sorrows. Ishmael is not the start of the line which will bring the Savior. He is from the line who will bring God's people's sorrow down through the ages. Just as Cain came first, and then Abel, so Ishmael came first, and then Isaac. But Isaac and the son of promise have not yet come. So Abram and Sarah have to keep waiting, keep trusting, patiently. Now, I know that many of our Arabic and Muslim friends trace their lineage back to Ishmael, and consider him to be the son that God favored. But the biblical testimony simply does not bear that out. So those from Arabic and Muslim backgrounds need to know that Isaac was the line through whom God's Savior would come. And did come in time. And though conflict between Arabs and Israelis from this point forward continued down through history, the greatest conflict going on in the world today is not between the Arabs and the Israelis. The greatest conflict going on in the world today is not between Russia and the Ukraine. The greatest conflict going on in the world today is between God and sinners. And in fact, what everyone really needs to know is that no matter your descent, you can be included in the people of God through faith in His promised Son, through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the issue here, and the issue for you, is not your descent or your doing. The issue is whether or not you see the God who seeks and saves sinners, the God who confronts us in our sin, shows compassion to us in Jesus Christ, and calls us to trust his covenant promises. In other words, do you see the truth about God that Hagar sees? Three times in verses 13 to 15. Hagar recognizes that God is the God who sees her. He is El Royi. God sees her like he sees all of us in our sin and suffering. A well is even named after Hagar's experience of God's sight of here. The, the name Beher Lahai Royi means the well belonging to the living one who has seen me. Is this not a glorious truth that the living God, that God Almighty, that the all-seeing God sees you? He sees what you have tried to force in your life. He sees how you've tried to find fulfillment through sin. And He, He does not come after, does not cast you off, but He comes after you. And He says to you, He seeks to find you and say to you, this is my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You may have salvation in him. Though you have scorned me and tried to run away from me like Hagar, I am coming after you because I love you and I want you to be saved. Jesus, I've given you my son. He has perfectly obeyed all of my law. He did not raise his hand against anyone to strike anyone, but instead he was struck. He was bruised and crushed for our iniquities. He did not raise his hand but to have them nailed to the cross. To be that sacrifice who would suffer for us and for our salvation. He is that one who died for his brothers instead of putting them to death. No, he is the one who even lives now because Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to God the Father. Because he was that perfect and sinless sacrifice, dying in the place of sinners, being a well of life for us. God raised him from the grave. He raised Him, showing us that we may find eternal life in Him because He lives forevermore. Friend, I want to invite you this day, not to run away from the Lord, but to run to the Lord. He is coming after you in grace and goodness, offering you Jesus Christ, His one and only Son. And He says, you can be a part of my people. Come and trust Him today. So friend, turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is available to you in salvation today. He offers Himself in love. He sees you. Do you see Him? Do you respond to Him in faith? If you want to know more about what it means to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about this good news. It is the sight of God. I think the knowledge of God, the compassion of God that enables Hagar and us really to endure, to wait patiently. The Lord seeks Hagar. He sends her back to Sarah. He sees her, meets her in her distress. But there's one final lesson of our passage. The Lord sustains His promises. This is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Do you notice how the passage ends there in verse 16? Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. We already know from the passage, particularly from verse 12, that Ishmael is not the promised son. So what's this mean? Well, since Abram Remains alive. The hope of God fulfilling His promises through Abram remains alive. Since the Lord is sustaining Abram's life, the Lord is sustaining the hopes of fulfilling the promises. If that's true, and it is, what is required of Abram and Sarai is persistent and patient faith. And the God who sees them in their sin and in their suffering and their sorrows. Abram is now eighty-six and he's going to have to wait another 14 years or so before Isaac, the promised son, finally comes. That God is keeping both of them alive and into their old age means that they have continued reason to hope, to be patient, not to force it, but to wait for God to fulfill his promises by his power in his time. Beloved, maybe you are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Maybe like Sarai, you're growing impatient and coming up with ideas to speed the process along. Maybe you're like Abram and you're willing to try just about anything. Before you try to force it, keep waiting and keep trusting God to fulfill his purposes by his power. Now, that doesn't mean you do nothing. No, you should keep doing and obeying all that he has revealed in his word. That's actually what Hagar did, right? God gave her a command. And what did she do? She obeyed it and went back. Patiently waiting also means praying and telling God, Lord, I know that you see me. I need you to act and sustain me while I wait for you to act. Patiently waiting also means that you do not take matters into your own hands. Form sinful schemes or go the wrong way. You can trust that God sees you and seeks you and has saved you by his son. Perhaps what he wants from us when we're tempted to force it is to let him bring out the bigger hammer. I mean, beloved, think about it. God has promised Abram at 75 that he would give him a son. Isn't a bigger hammer 86? But isn't an even bigger hammer 99? Older? God is orchestrating all of this so it is absolutely clear that he and he alone is the source of salvation. The fulfillment of these promises can only be found in him. So, beloved, what's better than our small and scrotty arms lifting those tiny hammers. For the Lord bringing out a great big sledge and bringing down the weight of divine blessing in only the way that He can. When you are impatient and your situation seems impossible, don't force it. Perhaps what the Lord is doing is teaching you to look to Him as your only source of hope. Wait patiently upon God to fulfill His promises by His power In his time. Let's pray for God to give us the grace to do that now. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.